If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Whether it's the discussion on rising sea levels or nuclear waste, islands have gravitated to the epicenter of the geopolitical zeitgeist. But why are we more interested in islands than ever before? In this episode, Professor at the Centre for the Study of Democracy, David Chandler, explores the importance of islands in the Anthropocene. David Chandler is Professor of International Relations at the University of Westminster and edits the journal Anthropocenes, Human, Inhuman, Posthuman, as well as the book series Routledge Studies in Resilience. Chandler's long-term research focus is on new forms of subjectivity, shaped by both a retreat from the human as subject and the world as object. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome David Chandler to Philosophy for Our Times. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm David Chandler. I'm a professor of international relations at the University of Westminster. And today I'm giving a talk around a project that I'm doing with a colleague of mine, Jonathan Pugh at Newcastle University on Anthropocene Islands. And the title of my talk today is Islands and the End of Modernity. I'm going to be presenting work that's ongoing about islands after the end of modernity. And the key problematic, the key area is the relationship between islands as a geological geographic form and ideas and understandings of the world. Now, I think on the face of it, you might sort of think that it's unlikely that there's going to be any relationship between a geological form like an island and how we think about the world. I want to argue that I think there is a link and that today, as I prefigure in the title, after the end of modernity, islands have been really useful to enable us to think differently about the world. So I want to make points about islands as geographic, geological forms and thinking and also make a point about time, temporality change, that um, the way we think about islands and, and imagine them, I want to argue, has changed. That there's something important, not just to do with islands, but also with our perspectives after the end of modernity. The talk is like a bit of an experiment in the relationship between materiality, islands as real things in the world, and how we think, more broadly, how we think 
of ourselves as humans in the world. So that's the, the sort of area I want to be working within. So first of all, I want to sort of lay out what I think is the relationship between modernity and islands. I think that until recently, we didn't think a lot about islands. The islands were seen as sort of, the name sort of immediately implies, as isolated, as separated from the world. As the world was modernizing, industrializing, sort of improving, or maybe civilizing in some sort of linear developmental way, quite often we understood islands as not being part of that, as being left behind. Quite often, even today, we still see islands as vulnerable, in need of support, in need of assistance. I want to suggest that even within that understanding of islands as backward, as isolated, something is going on. It's not just the materiality of islands themselves. It's also about how we think and how we see and how we imagine the world. And in modernity, we had a very particular imagination about what it meant to be human and what it meant to be in the world. And that imagination, I'll argue sort of crudely or heuristically, was based on an understanding of progress, an understanding of universality, could also be posed as a liberal or modernist understanding of the world. And in that understanding, there's a sort of a free play of reason in terms of democracy and human interaction, and also in terms of markets, the economy, a free play of exchange of goods. So the market works as like a hidden hand, homogenizing, universalizing. This is in the liberal imaginary. So in that imaginary of modernity and its sort of inner telos, its drive towards progress, if you're a liberal, a drive towards perfection, I guess, always learning, always improving. Islands are seen as isolated, as separated, as the product of barriers towards this process of universalizing and homogenizing. Islands are, as I say, left behind because we have an imaginary of modernity as a universalizing and rationalizing and civilizing force. So the point I want to make is that um, today, maybe we can say in the world of climate change and global warming, maybe some of you have come across this concept of the Anthropocene, the idea that um, a lot of our aspirations towards progress and towards development have really ignored our relationships with the environment and with the world that we live in. We just sort of took the world for granted. We just focused on human consumption, production, how science enabled us to do stuff, to extract more. And we sort of understood progress as something without limits. And we understood human potential and possibility as something that didn't really have a sort of fixed relationship to the world that we could always invent more we could change things you know we could do things differently we could learn correct things build more make more that sort of thing so i want to suggest that in the world of the anthropocene in the world of climate change and global warming and species extinction there's a greater sort of skepticism about that universalizing story of progress that the end of modernity or the, the idea that we can't just count on progress, that we have to think differently about the world, about our relationships within the world, that that sort of crisis point calls for new ways of thinking. I want to suggest, and the work that I do with my colleague Jonathan Pugh, together we're working on this book that's coming out shortly in, in a couple of weeks, hopefully, Anthropocene Islands, Entangled Worlds. 
in that we sort of look at how islands can be and are being turned to as, as a resource for other ways of thinking and other ideas. And I think the key point that we want to emphasize is that islands enable us to think differently because they emphasize or they enable us to think more about relations, entanglements, and feedbacks. The idea being that in islands, that feedbacks and relations are more apparent and that we sort of lose those in a modernist imaginary where we use science and rationalism and technology and we separate ourselves from the world. That actually being bound to our context and to our relations and being forced to be sensitive to those things is a very useful thing and something that modernity has lost and we need to regain and we can think about different ways of regaining that or developing those sensitivities through thinking about islands. And I want to emphasize that um, islands as a geological, geographical form enable us to think about feedback effects. And I want to talk a little bit about feedback effects and the relations that they enable us to see and to encounter. And then look at different ways in which you might think and work with islands in relationship to moving beyond a modernist understanding. I'm going to call those, and with my colleague Jonathan in our book, we sort of structure the book around these four different ways of thinking and working with islands. Resilience that many people may have heard of, patchworks, correlation, and storiation, ways of thinking and ways of understanding, which hope to go beyond and do things differently than a modernist framework. So just to give a form, a framework, a background to that, in terms of feedback effects, we could argue that um, in islands and being on islands, that relations, because we're isolated or the world is more fragmented, that we're more dependent upon our context and our sensitivities to context. And possibly one of the most interesting or well-known theorists who was able to think differently through the experience of islands is Charles Darwin. Even though evolution sounds like a liberal modernist way of understanding progress as part of that homogenizing, universalizing idea of development. In actual fact, what Darwin was arguing, that um, development isn't linear, that development is contextual and is relational, and that species, if you look at different species, birds, animals, cats, a whole range of different species that Darwin looked at through his engagement with islands, he saw that those species developed differently, that there wasn't one in the essence of a species that somehow was essential to it, that it sort of improved throughout time. The evolution was a one-way, linear way of measuring development. So from Darwin's perspective, different islands enable species to relate differently. He says, like, if you put different cats on different islands and you left them there for generations and generations, what would happen is that those cats would evolve differently on different islands. And they would involve in such a way in those relationships to make them better, more functional, more efficient cats for those particular islands, for those ways in which different species were aligned, the environment, different aspects of nature, different processes of interrelationship. The cats would be different on each island, but it doesn't mean that any cats or on any island are better or worse than any others. But those differences would be products of how different islands were. The differences, in fact, begin to make differences. How does that work? Because of feedback effects. 
because cats are dependent upon sources of food, just like any other species, dependent on sources of food, everything else that you need to survive and to prosper. But because each island is going to be different, cats will evolve differently in relationship to other species. And at the same time, all those other species are also evolving differently. So you have an understanding of evolution and understanding of life that is relational, that is dynamic, where differences lead to other differences through those repetitions, repetitions of small differences over long periods of time. So we could understand that as feedback effects and through those feedback effects, continually being responsive to others in our context and in our environment, differences become magnified. That every species on, on every island becomes increasingly differentiated. And through those processes of differentiation, new species evolve, different differences take on different importances. And you can see life as an interactive and relational process, not based on essences. Nothing is inevitable and nothing is linear. You can see that as a far different imaginary of the world to a flat, universal, homogenizing world of equalizing, the world of the imaginary of modernity, the world of markets and of reasoning and of flattening, where modernity is increasingly understood to flatten, to remove differences. We can understand islands as opening our eyes to other ways of thinking about the world. It's not that islands themselves are different. It's more that they provide a gateway into different ways of thinking. And with the perceived crisis of modernist ways of thinking, with climate change, global warming, we're increasingly, so we argue, we're increasingly drawn to learning from islands or thinking through and with islands for different imaginaries, different ways of working, different ways of understanding. So in our book, as part of our project, just as beginning to outline and to explore these issues, we look at four different ways in which historically, socially, people have thought with islands in a different way. So the first aspect we could call resilience and people have different, every concept, every word is interpreted differently, but um, we would understand resilience as a challenge to traditional top-down command and control ways of regulating, where you gain knowledge in a centralized way and you try and sort of produce more, improve things, develop things, add to scientific knowledge. The resilience seems to be a more relational thing. It's something where it's not an essence of an entity. It's about our relationship to problems. That um, when we're thinking about resilience, it's who is resilient to what, in what context, in which ways. What does it mean to be resilient, to sort of be able to cope. People would argue that resilience is a way of more working on ourselves, being able to adapt to problems, being able to adapt to difficulties and adapt to change, not just sort of seeing problems as immediately amenable to a scientific solution. A bit like traditionally, we would like build walls against sea level rises or develop new antibiotics against bacteria and illnesses. In a resilience approach, it's sort of saying the more we keep on sort of fighting wars against things, defending what we have and what we are, seeing things as threats and problems to be defended against or fought off, then we're really not addressing the problem. We can't just keep building walls to deal with sea level rise. Maybe we need to think about our own ways in which we produce and consume in our societies. Maybe we need to adapt. Maybe 
the problems aren't just external, they're also to do with what we're doing, how we're organizing, how we're consuming, how we're producing. You can see that sort of level of sensitivity towards the world, a more relational approach. And often those ways of thinking are based on ecosystem understandings, on island-based ways of thinking. Island-based ways of thinking in the we're thinking about the contextual relations that are inside the island, inside the entity, inside the ecosystem, and how they might respond to external impacts and external effects. So once we begin to think in island ways, understanding each little island as its own dynamic relational way of thinking and developing each island as responding differently to external signals, whether they're positive impacts or, or negative impacts, that it depends really on the island, that different times, different places, different contexts, different things will work. So resilience is a much more pragmatic way of thinking. If we're thinking about how we might think around resilience in terms of, say, foreign policy or policy implications, it would be that there isn't a policy solution that fits all different times and places, that different societies, different cultures, different legal systems, uh, different parts of the world, different regions within a different country are composed differently of different entities and different relations, and they will respond differently as well. So what resilience is doing is saying that we need to be thinking differently about those problems and how they arise, working with them appreciating differences and appreciating relations, not just imposing some sort of solution in a top-down way. Once we think about those ways in which relations work, ways in which separate contexts develop their own dynamisms, we don't need to continue to imagine the world in a, in a way of like a flat geographical space. And so what me and Jonathan Pugh are thinking when we're doing our work and the island work, is that a lot of island experiences and a lot of island imaginaries then move away from this idea of islands as fixed spaces over time. That we can think of islands as relations that we're in, in, in immediate contexts in many different ways. You could sort of imagine that the world could be understood as made of infinite islands, islands all the way down. That if every circumstance, every sort of meeting of individuals, every different context has different potential outcomes, different creative possibilities, then you could imagine that you as an individual perhaps were part of numerous different islands, each island having its own sort of imminence, possible creative potential. I mean, imagine, say you're like, you're just having a conversation with someone. You haven't already worked out beforehand everything that you're going to say any more than I'm doing my presentation here. I'm not reading out a script or something. It's sort of like a process of emergence. So if you're having a conversation, quite often you'll say something you didn't think you were going to say. You might have a thought you didn't think you were going to have. Through that sort of connection, that nexus, things are constantly evolving and developing in the same way Look at the coronavirus, interspecies sort of ways that different viruses might develop. They're not like predicted, they're not linear. Things are all continually changing momentarily in different spaces of connection. And when we're thinking of islands in that more sort of metaphorical, general way, that every occasion is its own sort of island with opportunities, it enables us to think differently about how we might live in our contemporary context, rather than trying to sort of 
plan things or develop science and regulations to deal with climate change and different problems that we might have. Uh, many people would argue we need to develop ethics of care and sensitivities where we're aware of our responsibilities in our own environment, our own context, our own set of connections, what we're doing, what we're buying, who we're seeing. With the coronavirus, it becomes really clear the way that we can sort of measure and think differently about each different engagement in terms of the consequences or the, the capacities for doing things. So what we're sort of arguing is that you can see how an island understanding that looks at contexts and dynamism and relationships and the importance of differences can enable us to think about how we might impact policies in terms of resilience ways of thinking. And it also might think about how we might think about we, how we govern ourselves differently in our contemporary world. So I can talk about the, the final two aspects that we look at in terms of how we think and understand in island ways, in ways that go against or are different to a modernist framework of understanding. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of the talk, when I'm talking about universality, the imaginary of modernity and this linear causal telos of progress, causation is key to a modernist understanding, a universal understanding of the world. But when this happens, this happens as a consequence. And so that way you can take your causal knowledge out of the context of the messy world and learn stuff and theorize and apply it to other things. We want to argue that that's not really how island knowledge works. Island knowledge in terms of the knowledge that's derived from living in a relational context where you need to be grounded, you need to be thinking about feedback effects in order to survive and in order to thrive. And as I sort of alluded to in the discussion around Darwin and islands and the dynamic imminence, the liveliness of islands in creating differences, how that works, we can understand is a way of knowing, a way of knowing through correlation, a way of knowing by indirectly knowing, knowing how signs and signals show us something about the world, how differences make differences, how that is magnified in the world is by interaction by species following species. If you think about islands and island differences that I've already touched on, if you think maybe there's different underground water or spring somewhere, that in response to that water, different organisms will grow, different plants might then sort of come to the area, there's different plants, then different animals, different insects. You can see how an ecosystem evolves, and as Eduardo Cohn in How Forests Think, excellent book about ecosystems, forests, you could see as islands of difference, how they evolve differently, how life evolves in relation, how knowledge develops relationally. It's a really important understanding of correlation through relations evolving, through patterns emerging, life learns and life goes on. You hear a loud noise, you know, maybe that's a sign of danger, a dog is barking, maybe there's an intruder. You see insects going in a certain direction to do something, maybe there's a food source there. And through that sort of replication of patterns, through that sort of exaggeration, we can see that different intensities, different essences develop and differences are, are multiplied and become more intensified. So that correlation, that reading of things through other things, we can see and islands are often talked about as like the canaries in the coal mine, 
that because of their relational dependencies, their sensitivities to climate change, the bleaching of corals, the changing of water directions, you can register not just broader change in, changes in the world through island life, but you can understand island life itself as life learning through its own relationality. And we also touch on issues of what we call storiation, where those sort of relations are then sort of stretched or problematized over time, where many academics, thinkers, poets, and activists are drawn to islands to think about the legacies of colonialism, nuclear testing, pollution, other problems and issues. So you have a more sort of speculative, imaginary way of thinking about how things relate and thinking about what our possibilities might be in the future for doing things differently. Islands have come into their own after modernity. But um, interestingly, islands are a good example of areas of, that were seen as not important, that their importance becomes reversed, that they're brought back in, that things that we thought were sort of backward about islands, those sort of relational dependencies, their sort of like refusal in a way, we could say their refusal to be homogenized and universalized, now seems to be telling us that there's other ways of doing things, other ways of thinking, other ways of being in the world. And the aspects that uh, we draw on from islands, as I said, are really about sensitivities, about awareness and attunement to our relational being in the world, which seems to be much more important today now that it seems that human hubris, human ideas of being separate from nature are continually questioned with climate change and global warming. So islands bring us back to being in the world, to being related in the world, to thinking about how we might be sensitive to feedbacks, how we might understand ourselves differently, and how we might develop a different way of thinking, knowing, and a different way of ethical being in the world. So as I said, that's not purely because of islands. It's also because of the moment that we're in, that we're driven to search for geographical, geological forms that enable us to visualize how it might be that we can think about these sort of attunements and these sensitivities, other ways of creatively thinking about the future and doing things differently. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.